Thank you. It's good to be here. Let me just fix this radio here for a second. As I stood up, I yanked it right out. So lost everything. Sorry. Interns, it's good to have you here. I got to be here last summer, yeah, when the intern showed up. So they're having me back because uh, I can put the fear into you. <laughs> I think that's how they're doing that. Uh, it's really good to be in Central Oregon. My wife and I drove over this morning, um, which is a great drive, uh, especially when it's not raining. I went for a very long bike ride yesterday, and it rained about 50% of the time, which is just crazy because it's June 2nd, now the 3rd. So when you said, Brandon asked, or somebody asked, Justin asked, is this summer yet, or whatever, uh, kind of crazy, but uh, no, it's not. We live in Oregon. Summer starts about mid-July, I believe. At any rate, I'm really glad to be here. This morning, I want to try and pull a, a Ken Weitzma on you, if you will. Uh, I know Ken relatively well, and Ken is a deep thinker, good communicator, someone who challenges your thinking. And it's fun to come to Antioch because I know what you've sat under and I know the challenges that you've faced as Ken has tried to communicate the deep things of God and how that interfaces with our lives. So this morning I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. I'm going to ask you to think hard about a few things. I want to pull from the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. It's a rather long story. I'll read some and summarize some. I'm picking up just a little bit of an echo. You guys okay up there? It could be me, but at any rate, don't want to distract anybody. The thought here is that I would like to be able to challenge all of us this morning, but interns to some degree, just a couple thoughts for you guys as you get set for a summer of ministry, and the congregation generally. What does that mean? The program here at Antioch, as it relates to internship, is growing in its stature and how people know about it. It's getting national attention, if you will, and that's a good thing. It's a strong thing, and now you've got students coming from all over the United States to spend a summer here. Well, what does that mean for Antioch Church? Is it free slave labor for a summer? Just like, hey, wow, they're here, and so much stuff can get done for the church, and we might even be able to hire them out at less than minimum wage. could be fun. Uh, is that what it's all about, or is there something greater that's at stake? Obviously there is. And there's a challenge for all of us as we simply look at the faith and it being transferred to the next generation, which is a hot button for me. What does that look like, and how are we to go about that? This morning I want to draw from the Old Testament this picture, a story. really turns into a metaphor for us and how we live our lives. You may have heard of this story, maybe not, but here's the thought. This morning, we have cultural conditions that we've been a part of now for a number of years that can commonly be referred to as post-modernity. Now, I'm not going into a big philosophical understanding, but we kind of move from a pre-modern thought as human beings that explained the world with um, deity and God-truth to a modern world that said, actually, the rational mind has a much better way to deal with the universe and an explanation of that, to post-modernity that found both believing in God and believing in science or the rational mind to have something that was lacking. 
And that's really oversimplified. But today we find ourselves in a cultural situation where truth is relative. And it's much more about how we're feeling about some things than it is necessarily that there's something objective and stands above humanity. It affects how we view the world. Hence, our worldviews really are born out of this at some level. These cultural conditions uh, require the church to function, I believe, as a bilingual community. That is, the need to be able to speak two different languages, to be conversant both in the traditions of the church and the narratives of the dominant culture that we find ourselves in, not only here in Bend, Oregon, but across the United States and the world. The dominant cultural worldview today certainly has this feeling that truth is evolving. You can hear it in all kinds of voices, but that truth isn't static, it isn't like it's fixed, but that it moves as we move and change. You can hear in the president's explanation of his particular stance on uh, homosexuality and marriage when he says, my position has evolved. And there's lots of people that feel that way. Um, Lots of people that would say, it's not a fixed truth any longer. It's really a truth that changes with the conditions, which is very uh, predictable within this postmodern kind of culture. Ours, our faith tradition with a fixed truth, now becomes very much an alternative view. It's certainly not mainstream. It's an alternate view of the world, or an alternate view, worldview, if you, if you will. Metaphorically, though, bilingualism is at the heart of God's mission. You can think about this just for a moment. Being able to speak two different languages is bound up really in the incarnation. God became what he loved, humanity. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the divine self, sent into human form. And sending Jesus to become like us so that we could become like him. God being able to speak two, two languages. A God language and a human language and being able to relate. So that's kind of the thought here. Christian formation, the transfer of faith from one generation to the next, the the transferring of faith from one person to another, really is this translating of the words of faith into lives of faith. It's one thing for me to stand up here and preach and to give information. It's, It's no guarantee, though, that faith actually gets transferred. That's a very supernatural thing, not controlled by me, certainly controlled by God's Spirit. But what is it that touches us at our deepest heart? Is it information about the Bible and God? What is it that we see? How is it that this language gets translated? Well, let's take a look at this story. Chapter 18, an interesting situation has arisen. Assyria is on the march and is uh, basically taking over the world and has done so to this point, even capturing the divided kingdom, they've already taken out uh, the north, or Israel, and moved through all of their cities and defeated all of the armies, and they've gone through the whole world this way, and now they're moving into Judah. They've captured some cities, but they're headed for Jerusalem, the heart of 
the nation of Israel. And Hezekiah is on the throne. He's a pretty good king. Hezekiah, uh, when he comes into uh, his kingship and onto the throne, uh, Judah there, he does a lot of things, follows God and tears down the high places and altars and false gods, and uh, really is equated as uh, a good king in Israel's time. But he's up against it now because Assyria has walked through the world and has now got their eyes trained on Jerusalem. Let's just take a look at this, beginning at verse 1. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, began to rule over Judah in the third year of King Hoshea's reign in Israel. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. Let me just skip down. Verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was never another king like him in the land of Judah, either before him or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. He revolted against the king of Assyria and refused to pay him tribute. He also conquered the Philistines as far distant as Gaza and in its territory, from their smallest outpost to their largest walled city. During the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign, which was the seventh year of Hoshea's reign, King Shalamanzer of Assyria attacked Israel and began a siege on the city of Samaria. Three years later, during the sixth year of Hezekiah's reign, uh, Samaria fell. At that time, the king of Assyria deported the Israelites to Assyria and put them in colonies. Okay, so here's what we have. We have definite uh, overthrow and now uh, this, this disbursement or exile for Israel. But the focus of attention is now turning towards Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem. Let's skip down to verse 19. The Assyrian king's personal representatives sent this message to King Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria, Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? He's speaking to Hezekiah. Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skills and strength? Which of your allies will give you any military backing against Assyria? Will Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, you will find it to be a stick that breaks beneath your weight and pierces your hand. The pharaoh of Egypt is completely unreliable. But perhaps you will say, we are trusting in the Lord our God. But he isn't the only one who was insulted by King Hezekiah. Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? I'll tell you what. My master, the king of Assyria, will strike a bargain with you. If you can find 2,000 horsemen in your entire army, he will give you 2,000 horses for them to ride on. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and horsemen? What's more, do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? The Lord himself told us, go and destroy it. This is a major taunt from the king of Assyria. Attacking this dominant culture, Assyrian culture, seeking to attack Jerusalem and this beautiful walled city. It's pretty crazy and pretty cocky, but they have reason to be. They've walked through every other empire on earth, so who's going to stop them? This turns in kind of uh, to a political battle at this point. 
Verse 26, Then Eliakim, Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the king's representatives, Please speak to us in Aramaic. Now what you have to understand here is that the king of Assyria's representatives have ridden up close to the wall at Jerusalem, and Hezekiah has sent his little contingent out to meet them. And they're out away from the wall, and they're meeting, and, and they're giving this taunt and this threat to Israel, or to Judah. That's what's occurring. So here's what the three from Hezekiah's camp say. Please speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand it well. That's the language of the dominant culture. Don't speak in Hebrew, for the people on the wall will hear. What do you think that means? Essentially, what Assyria is saying is, we're going to take you out. And the little contingent knows what they're saying. And it's a legitimate taunt, and they're saying, don't get close to the wall. Our people will hear and understand. Speak to us in Aramaic, they don't know it. We do, though. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, because that's really going to scare them. So how do they respond? But Sennacherib's representative replied, My master wants everyone in Jerusalem to hear this, not just you. He wants them to know that if you do not surrender, this city will be put under siege. The people will become so hungry and thirsty, they will eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Can you imagine if it was said like that? It probably wasn't said that way, right? It was probably a little more crass than that. Then he stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says, don't let King Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you from my power. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying, the Lord will rescue us. This city will never be handed over to to this Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me. Open the gates and come out. Then I'll allow each of you to continue eating from your own garden and drinking from your own well. Then I'll arrange to take you to another land like this one, a country with bountiful harvests of grain and wine, bread, vineyards, olive trees and honey, a land of plenty. Choose life instead of death. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And what about the gods of Shepavarim and Hena and Iva? Did they rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? Name just one. So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem? But the people were silent and did not answer, because Hezekiah had told them not to speak. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and the palace administrator Shebna, and the court secretary Joah, son of Asaph, the royal historian, went back to Hezekiah. They tore their clothes in despair, and they went in to see the king and told them what the Assyrian representative had said. It's a crazy story. It's a taunt. It's a slap in the face, and it's just basically saying, we're going to walk through you. And all your, your trite little stories of a great God of Israel mean nothing, because no one has been able to stand against us. And maybe that's not exactly what it feels like for you and I today. 
But the cultural onslaught is true. The dominant culture has a story to tell about our world, a particular worldview. And for you interns, perhaps potential leaders, the next generation, this is crucial. What is it that will protect you as you would seek to engage this dominant culture? The church and Christianity in particular has tried all kinds of strategies in the past. And one of those has been just simply to ignore the dominant culture and to try and build walls and fortresses big enough to hold it out. If you've been to Antioch and heard me, you've heard me speak this in the terms of family culture and what we try to do to wall off the world. It happens at a much larger level. And yet that's not what's occurring here. Representatives from the kingdom, God's people, have gone to the wall and outside the wall to engage in a conversation. That is the story. The Assyrians have surrounded Jerusalem. All the attention is at the wall. The wall is what stands between them, the Jews and the culture, and it seems to be right on the edge of being overwhelmed. And the Assyrian negotiator stands there and taunts and and screams at Yahweh and shouts for these conditions of surrender. But you see, in chapter 19, you will see that there's a conversation behind the wall that's occurring. Hezekiah has been in that conversation with his leaders and with the people of Jerusalem. Let me just read to you a portion of that. Verse 14, after Hezekiah received the letter and read it, This is out of chapter 19. He went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. O Lord God of Israel, you're enthroned between mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Listen to me, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see, O Lord, and see and listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance. Hezekiah pouring out his heart before the Lord. In that chapter, he speaks to the idea of reminding his people who God is. You remember that Sennacherib attacks that very specifically and says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to him. You don't don't really believe that your God's going to take care of you. And yet this is exactly the conversation behind the wall. It is the language of faith. This conversation behind the wall is pivotal. It's crucial. This is what's going to determine survival. So in that conversation behind the wall, the people of Judah speak and grieve openly in Hebrew. It's an intimate language of family and friendship, of worship and prayer, recounting God's stories of faithfulness, remembering that their salvation is in God's hands. It's behind the wall that the people remember who they are. So here's just a little bit of the challenge. You will be involved in ministry for a summer all over the place, outdoors and theater and media, involved in the community. And you'll live in the homes of the people of this community of faith, Antioch. This isn't about Antioch Church giving information to interns, 
or simply giving information to the next generation. No, the conversation is very different here. The conversation that Antioch needs to have with its children and its interns is the language of faith, of Christianity, behind the wall. It is you recounting the stories of God from his scriptures. And it's you recounting the stories of his faithfulness in your own life. That's what gives to interns what they need. They have given up a summer to be here and out in the culture. And they need desperately the grounding and the founding of a community of faith. That's not to take anything away from their families, which I'm sure have done a good job of pouring into their children what is true and fixed as truth goes in the world today, as worldviews are compared. The onslaught from the outside is staggering. And any community that wants to sustain itself must have space behind the wall to tell its own narrative and to imagine its own future in relationship to that narrative. Does that make sense? What does it look like? I debated on whether or not to use this example. I'm going to anyway. The debate rages in a lot of places and certainly lots of places of controversy as it relates to what is true. And probably this whole idea of homosexuality is um, like at the pinnacle or the zenith. It just seems like we're confronted with it anywhere we go and everywhere we go. And I'm asked the question often, um, what's your view or what's your take on that? And I've tried to approach that. I think even the last time I was here, I tried to take that question on at Redux. But here's, here's my thought. I'd like to back that conversation up just a little bit and try and say, okay, when the dominant culture has a language and a worldview that's coming at you from every angle saying, this is right, how would they declare it to be right? This is how the argument goes. Physical attraction to another person is not something you can control. Some argue it's a learned behavior, and some say, nope, you're just born with it. Doesn't really matter, at least for my discussion. That doesn't matter. It's just something that can't be controlled. Have you ever tried to tell yourself, I do, I do not want to be attracted to that person? Have you ever found yourself looking at the opposite sex and saying, I don't really want to be attracted. How do you deny that? It's very difficult to do. So it stands to reason that from a worldview position, what we actually feel and are attracted to is very, very strong. But let's just assume that that's our worldview, that the highest truth for us as it relates to human attraction is what we feel. That's the highest truth. There isn't anything above that. You were born that way. You can't change that. Does that make sense? That's the highest truth. Let's just live with inside that worldview. Everybody there? 
So let me get personal. If you're married, you ever been attracted to somebody else? And the highest truth is what you feel? What would it look like to act on that? That's the highest truth. I can't help it. I can't help being attracted. So I'm going to move forward with that. Do you think that's a prevalent worldview today? Absolutely. I'm dissatisfied over here and I'm attracted over here. This is the direction I'm going to go. If we're going to live with a worldview and a language that says physical attraction and what I feel is the highest truth, then I think it's probably appropriate to say it doesn't matter who you marry. It doesn't matter how many people you marry or not marry. You can be attracted to your own children. Who would deny you? Does that sound awful? Well, just mark my words. That's coming. If that's the worldview that we'll attend to, that's coming. It's crazy. But not having a fixed truth and an objective truth puts us into a situation where we are just simply determining what is true by what we feel. The conversation behind the wall has to be one in which the fixed truth is told. And it's a very distinctive language, a very distinctive conversation. What's really crucial is for interns, our own children, the next generation, to understand who we are. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand your identity? On a Sunday morning, that's what our conversation should be about. Who are we as the people of God? Flip over to 1 Peter for just a second. Peter is trying to explain this in a way that will capture our minds and our attention on this. And he uses another metaphor of a, of a building. You've heard this before. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Come to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he is precious to God who chose him. And now God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are God's holy priests who offer the spiritual sacrifices that please him because of Jesus Christ. As the scriptures express it, I'm placing a stone in Jerusalem, a chosen cornerstone, and anyone who believes in him will never be disappointed. Yes, he is very precious to you who believe, but for those who reject him, the stone that was rejected by the builders has now become the cornerstone. And the scriptures also say, he is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that will make them fall. They stumble because they do not listen to God's word or obey it, and so they meet the fate that has been planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a kingdom of priests, God's holy nation, his very own possession. This is so you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. Once you received none of God's mercy, now you have received his mercy." The behind-the-wall conversations are decisive for what happens on the wall. Remembering God's faithfulness. 
In so doing, Judah's leaders, and I would dare say our future leaders, enter the -the on-the-wall conversations with different assumptions about the world from those of the empire or the dominant culture. And this allows them to negotiate on the wall using the language of the realm, the language of the dominant culture, emboldened by this alternative vision of the future. What do we know to be the truth? Dominant culture would say truth is evolving and so is man. Whether it's a hardcore Darwinian evolution or whether it's just simply social evolution. The thought here, though, is that man is inherently good. And if he works hard enough and produces enough diplomacy and he is politically correct and tolerant, that we can solve the issues that plague us as a people. How well has that worked to date? It hasn't worked. It's completely bankrupt. And yet that is the empire's language. But if you start with the premise that man is inherently bad and sinful and trapped, if you start with that assumption then what the world needs is a savior. And that's where the conversation can start. But you would have to know the dominant culture's language. You'd have to know what they're saying. But more important than that, the controlling conversation would have to be the one behind the wall. And you, as those that will house the interns, Antioch community of faith in general, can speak that to each other and into the lives of our children and those that would come to spend a summer. There are two languages. Giving them this language from behind the wall will embolden them. But it is a distinctive language. It has perceptions and assumptions. Invite someone to church on Sunday morning. What, if they've never been to church, what does it feel like? Well, here's my hope. My hope is that it feels really strange. That it feels alien. Have you heard a preacher say that before? Now, because we've been kind of on this other kick that says we don't want you to feel strange and like an alien. We'd like you to feel comfortable. But in doing some of that, We have co-opted our language. Okay, Sunday morning we come to worship the one true God. And we do so with our language and our traditions and our liturgy. And if someone comes with you to church and sits with you, it should feel strange. We're standing, we're singing, we're praying, we're kneeling, we're giving. It's all kinds of weird things. That's no different than somebody going to their first baseball game. Never been to a baseball game before. And they go to a baseball game. Are they going to appreciate the baseball game? It was one to nothing. First one was scored in the first inning. That was it. (laughs) The best thing about the baseball game was the seventh inning stretch or the beer and the hot dog. But as far as understanding the game, it made no sense at all. Couldn't figure out if you're supposed to tag the guy or tag the base or who knows what the rules are. It's your first baseball game. 
You bring somebody to church, that's kind of what it feels like. What should their reaction be? They should either say, these people are freaking weird, and I'm getting out of here. Or they'd say, who in the world are they staring at? Can you imagine that? Now, if you're fluent in both languages, you can clue them in. You can start to speak in their language with your language in the background. You can. That's what it's like on a daily basis when we would engage our friends and family. To speak our language outside of this building, this room, out there in the world, what does it sound like? It's completely dysfunctional. You must be covered in the blood of the lamb. Really? That sounds gross. <laughs> Christianity and its language and traditions and its liturgy is not meant for the world. It's meant for us. We have to have a language that's not dysfunctional, that can reach our family and f- friends. So, this on-the-wall presence requires a competence in the language of the realm, knowing its perceptions and assumptions, the perceptions and assumptions of a broader culture. But we're, we're understanding that the controlling conversation is the one that we've already had. It's speaking to reinforce our identity as God's people. It also helps us to gain the tools to critique the dominant culture, not criticize. There's a huge difference. When you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You don't have to feel like you have to beat people up and tell them how stupid they are for not understanding the truth. You will be able to critique the culture, but that's different. That's saying, look at what you've put your trust in. Are you satisfied? Is it fulfilling? Are you happy? Does this make sense to you? Not you are foolish and stupid and you're going to hell. That's a criticism. When our language is strong, we can step back and we can critique the culture and its vision of reality. And it also reminds us that we're not to capitulate to the empire's demands. At the same time, we need a public language. Because we're going to be in negotiation at the wall. The inner conversation, the one behind the wall, is not the only one for us. We can't absolutize it, demanding everyone to join our conversation. That's not what we do. So as we engage with the world, we're able to get some distance on our community as well. And we're able to critique our own conversations, which are crucial. How are we perceived in the world? What does it look like? Do we have a a walled-off mentality? Or would the world actually say, no, they're willing to engage? We must be able to speak both languages. One is a transformative imagination. The other will actually equate into policy formation, if you will. It actually starts to equate in God's truth becoming evident in a whole bunch of different ways. As we would all be 
influencers in our world, as we would be seeking the common good. There was uh, a pitch for local mission and understanding and trying to bring that together. I can't tell you how important that is. The world is watching. We as Christians speak a good game. Maybe we don't play quite as hard as we need to. Well, I'm sure of that. We don't. But there needs to be a healthy tension, a proclamation of Jesus, which we have, but there also needs to be a presence. And that those are two poles, and we're in between those. We can carry on a conversation at the wall and be deeply concerned for our friends and our neighbors in our city, not caving to the demands of the empire, but with a vision of reality that's so much stronger and truthful. So this is what we challenge ourselves with. And here's the thought. Interns come in, children are raised in our homes, and we can teach them what we know. We can give them the information. We can even do it as a church. But we'll reproduce who we are. That's what will happen. Who we are as people is what gets reproduced. So this morning, the challenge really is for our own faith. Do we actually believe what God has said to us? That we're his people and chosen and redeemed and completely clean? The gospel's a freaky story. There's nothing you can do to be saved. Receive Jesus Christ and be completely cleansed and be given the righteousness of Christ. Not one single thing do you have to do. That's a freaky message. That goes counter to the entire language of the empire. It's all about doing. And we as Christians have acquiesced to that. It's easier to give a list of things that we need to do before we stop and say, who are we? Are we redeemed? Are we saved? So it is a question of faith this morning. What awakens faith is desire, not information. And what awakens desire is a person. With me? A person who accepts us unconditionally. That's true of humanity. What awakens desire is a person who accepts us. You ever felt accepted by someone, even though you did not feel worthy of the acceptance? What does that do to your very heart and being? What does that do to engage with a truthful worldview? An understanding that you've been accepted unconditionally by God himself. He loves you. How does that change your heart? Let me read to you this last bit of scripture from Hebrews. Just what it means to embrace Jesus. This ability for God to be bilingual is seen here most definitively in Hebrews, I think. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. 
What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and now is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for us. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone in all the world. And it was, the, it was only right that God, who made everything, for whom everything was made, should bring his many children into glory. Through the suffering of Jesus, God made him a perfect leader, one fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will declare the wonder of your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among all your people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. And in the same context, he said, here I am together with the children God has given me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We all know that Jesus came to help the descendants of Abraham and not to help the angels. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he he himself has gone through suffering and temptation, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. It is this person of Jesus Christ that you and I are focused on. And that faith in Jesus, your life lived with that understanding, and it has all of the perceptions and presumptions of this Christian language and faith built into it. That's you and I trusting in Jesus. That is what we would give to the next generation and to these interns this summer. Your life. I know you struggle. I know you doubt. I'm not talking about those things. God can handle those things. I'm talking about what's at the deepest core of your being. Trusting in Christ who has received you unconditionally. That is the good news. And if that language would be spoken in earnest this summer, we'll have a shot at transformative imagination from a group of interns that are truly being imaginative. You heard where they're coming from. Some have graduated, some are married, some are close to graduation and given up a summer and paying their own dollars. They've got some imagination. Give them the true faith that is Antioch's faith. I know. I know who your leaders are. I'm deeply appreciative of Ken and Justin, and Brandon, and Kip, and Linda. I I know them personally. I know many of your elders. This community of faith speaks the language of God. This morning, as you would awaken your own desire to the person of Christ, would you allow your person to awaken desire in others as you receive them unconditionally? You're free to do that. You're absolutely free to do that because your God reigns. Let me leave you with this. The last bit of the story. 
Flip back to 2 Kings. Looks really bad. Isaiah comes and prophesies to Hezekiah. Check this out. Verse 32, Isaiah is speaking, the great prophet. And this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem to shoot their arrows. They will not march outside its gates with their shields and build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the road on which he came. He will not enter this city, says the Lord. For my own honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend it. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian troops. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrach, his sons, Adremelech, and Sherezer killed him with their swords. Then they escaped to the land of Ararat, and another son, Irshadon, became the next king of Assyria. The truth is God's, not the world's. We stand with our king, Jesus, and seek to speak a language with our own vision of reality, to a world that's upside down. We'll have great patience and great grace because it was afforded us great patience and grace. And we will not be afraid because we know the story. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, it's a lot. A big story. Wish it could be the whole story wish we could do it from top to bottom every week so that our language would ring true and strong. But I pray this morning that whatever little bit is there, you would seal in the hearts of your people. I thank you immensely for Antioch Church and its representation of you here in Central Oregon. I thank you for the families that give up rooms and cars and resources trusting in a group of people they don't know, interns from around the nation, but trusting nonetheless, giving them home, shelter, comfort, and all the great stories of their faith. I give you thanks. And thank you, too, for interns who'd be willing to give up a summer, productivity in other places, to be here and to serve and to learn Would you make them conversant in both languages so that they will be able to stand at the wall at the city gate, not be ashamed, and defend the faith with great care and concern, knowing all the time that they are completely loved by a community of faith and their God, Jesus. We worship you this morning and pray all these things for his namesake. Amen.